So good to be up here. I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors of the church, but I've been gone for a while. I was out in Colorado for about five weeks helping to lead our college student leadership training program um, that maybe some of you in this room have done before. Um, But if you didn't know, we've got about 20 students from our campus who are spending their entire summer uh, pursuing God and growing as leaders. And uh, it's this big old program, and I got the privilege of helping to kind of run the thing for uh, a little over a month. It was amazing. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to talk about it in the, t- in the teaching. Um, I don't know if it fits, but I'm going to find a way to talk about it just because I loved it and I think it will encourage you guys. So uh, I want to start by saying this. One of the hardest things about being in ministry is that I so often use the following phrase. And I don't love that I use it so much, but I, these words come out of my mouth a lot. Quote, you know, not really sure. Not really sure. You know, people come to me with complex, and you can probably relate to this, it's not just a ministry leader thing, this is just a life thing. People come to us with complex, complicated, super difficult circumstances, and they say, what do I do? And I say, you know, I don't really know. I don't really know what you should do. Um, I can pray with you. Uh, I don't know. Um, they want to know what God is up to, right? And, and I, can, I can see the disappointment in their eyes when those words come off of my tongue, right? I wish that I could do better than that. There are times where I'm like, man, can't I do better? I'm a pastor. But with integrity, many times I just can't. Just can't do better than I don't know. Can we pray? Some, some come looking for a Bible verse, right? So like, here's my complex super detailed, difficult, nuanced, tons of factors, situation. What's the one Bible verse that will solve this for me? You're a pastor, right? You know the Bible. You probably have it like memorized. Nope, not true. Um, So what do I do? And I have this confession that I want to make before the church today. I kind of love telling people that there's actually not an answer for them in the Bible. Now, before you hurl stones at me, I'm a pastor, right? Before you start throwing stuff at me, I just, oftentimes there's not an answer. So here's the most common one. College church, I work a lot with the college students in the church. Should I start this dating relationship? Lord have mercy. I have heard that question like 10 million times. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Um, And here's the two reasons why. I kind of secretly like telling people there's not an answer for them in the Bible. The first is this. We drastically diminish the Bible when we treat it just like a user's manual. We dangerously, tragically, devastatingly diminish the Bible when we just make it like this teacher's edition. And it may seem innocent, and that's fine. It is sort of innocent, but if it were to be true, that, that, that the Bible, what we have, the inspired, living, active word of God that we hold in high authority in this church, but if, we, if it was just a user's manual, it would mean that the God that's revealed in it doesn't actually care about our hearts. All he wants is to get us to straighten up and act a certain way. He's, all he's after is some behavior modification. And my question to that would be, what kind of God is that? What kind of God is that? Distant, far off, 
aloof, disinterested in the complexities of our life, disinterested in the flurry of emotions that are happening inside of us. This God is not a God of relationship. He's the boss, right, whose rules you follow, whose work you accomplish, but who you've never once met or had a conversation with. And to imagine the God of Scripture like this is categorically wrong. And it's super devastating to our faith. Does God want us to walk in obedience? Absolutely. Does God want us to hold the scriptures in high, high, high privileged position in our lives? Yes. How we get there is the issue. Yes, there are times in our life where we're just gonna choose to be obedient because the words on the page say it. And that's a good thing. But that's not ultimately what God is after, right? He's about the transformation of our hearts, of our desires, Right? So do we pursue obedience simply because it says it, or do we pursue obedience because we have seen, we have tasted and seen that this God is that good, that amazing, that kind, that merciful, that we want to be like him? Right? Have our hearts just been so ravished by his goodness that we want to be holy and kind and just and humble and on and on all the things that he is? Right? And so we, we reduce the Bible if it's just like, tell me what to do. Give me the answer. Turn to the page. Find the verse and tell me. The second th- reason that I like telling people secretly that I can't help them, there's no answer in the Bible, is that it actually forces us to seek wisdom. And that's why we're doing this whole series in Proverbs, not simply to just scour the pages of the Bible feverishly looking for that one passage to tell us what to do, but instead to take the whole of the Bible into consideration, to reflect on the nature of God, to think deeply about Jesus' life, to think about how Jesus spoke, how he acted, the decisions that he made, how he spent his time, who he was with, to ask questions not just at the level of, our, of what to do, but of the motivation out of which we do those things. Right? We're forced to seek wisdom, to wrestle with God and be desperate for him, and to seek counsel, which we've been talking about in this series. And that's why Proverbs is such a gift to us. Praise God that we have the Proverbs. Only sometimes do the Proverbs tell us precisely what to do. It's actually not that, not that common. Way, 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 way more often, they simply invite us into this way of life where we prize and cherish wisdom. And there's something that's said there about just if we have the wisdom, it's almost like the other stuff will sort of fall into place. The Proverbs invite us to live with a hunger for wisdom that doesn't go away. That's just a part of our lives. So I know some of us, we just want the answers. And I get that. There are times in my life where I want that. And we struggle with why God just won't do that, won't just tell us, won't make it clear this is what to do. Right? We go to the Proverbs and we're just told a thousand times over, be wise, be wise, be wise. And here's the thing. Wisdom is not always like defined in the Proverbs. It's almost like by nature, wisdom requires pursuit. It requ- it's like wisdom is a little bit elusive. It requires effort and a pursuit. One of my favorite Proverbs is 4-7. It captures beautifully, if I can say this as a pastor, both the, the beauty and the utter aggravation of the Proverbs. 
This drives me nuts, right? So this is what Proverbs 4, 7 says. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. What? Okay, so the beginning, okay, great. Where do I start? You start with getting it. Well, no, well, that's what I want. Well, we'll go get it. Well, how, how, what do I do? Right? It's aggravating. Just tell me what to do. Of course, we know that kind of spattered all throughout the Proverbs is this line that it's actually the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. But even that, if I'm being honest, even that, for as beautiful and captivating as it sounds, kind of leaves us scratching our head, right? Okay, so I've set apart Christ as Lord, but really just what do I do now? (laughs) How do I make this decision? How do I choose this path in life? And I'm sure you've heard the teachers in this series say this already, but Proverbs is written from the vantage point of a father who is instructing his son and he is pleading with him, walk in wisdom. And wisdom is not intelligence, it's skill for living. It's the best, most concise definition I've heard for biblical wisdom, skill for living. And we know this experientially, the hardest decisions in our lives are not the ones between right and wrong, right? It's not between faithfulness and iniquity, hopefully. The hardest decisions are between what's best and what's good between good things, right? Not where like integrity and and faithfulness to Jesus is hanging in the balance, but where we're just choosing and trying to, to discern what is best. The reality is Proverbs isn't going to give us a direct answer to that, but it absolutely will give us insight and knowledge and a framework and a lens through which to see life that will allow us to move forward in faith. I think one of the greatest gifts of the Proverbs is that they require us to think deeply about life, right? They demand that we have this compass, some sort of like guiding framework by which we live our lives. They, they read, have you noticed this? They read the Proverbs like these really random, quick hitting all over the place, little nuggets of wisdom. You go to the Proverbs and in one chapter, you might hit on like a dozen different topics and it's like, Whoa, what, what? How do I take that all in? So they read this way, but they are actually calling us to something that's deep and solid and steady and unchanging. Listen to this church. We, we miss the point of the Proverbs. If all we ever do is just try to collect the nuggets of wisdom, that's so important. We need them, but we miss the ultimate point. If we're just collecting them, there is a depth that the Proverbs are trying to cultivate in us. And that's where we're going today. We're gonna try to go deep. We're gonna try to answer some really big, sort of ambitious questions. We're gonna start in chapter one, go to two, bounce around and land in chapter nine. And the first question, I know it's super ambitious, is I want us to wrestle with the question, what is life? What is life? And I promise you won't be here for eight hours. What is life like? Might be a better way to say it. How do we understand, perceive of our lives? And the second one is, what is the most important decision that we make in life? Okay, so what is life? What vision or picture do the Proverbs give us of life? I just returned, like I said, from Colorado about a week week and a half ago. Our family of six, we packed up and we drove from here in Bowling Green, Ohio to Estes Park, to the edge 
of Rocky Mountain National Park, and we moved in to a tiny two-bedroom cabin. Six of us. Four kids in one room, parents in another room. That's the not-so-amazing part. Hear me out. With a view of the illustrious snow-capped Long's Peak from our front porch. That's the amazing part that makes the sleeping four kids in one room thing, you know, bearable. It was a joy to help lead this program. There's something really special about LT. Let me gush and give you a quick update on our students. They are killing it out there. They're crushing it. I, I told them at the beginning of the summer, there is something about this place that will just inspire you. There's, it's like the mountains set the whole tone. They're beautiful. They're massive, right? They remind us of the glory of God and how small we are. They drive us, right, to pursue Jesus with our lives. I wish every single one of you could go out there for just like a day, fly out there, and just see our students and all the students across our network at a lot of these churches and more who are pursuing God out there. They're, ch- they're, they're hungering for time alone with God in devotion. They're waking up at like six in the morning together to have hour-long quiet times and be with Jesus. They're living in the kind of gospel community that will create Christ-likeness in them. And they're giving their faith away. Almost every single day, we'd be sitting in the dining hall. A student would come up to us and tell us a story of how they shared the gospel, how they talked about the Lord with a coworker. I could literally go on and on. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to have self-restraint. I think in a few weeks, we're going to show you a video with some snapshots, some stories from the students. One of my favorite parts of LT is going hiking, okay? And I think that hiking is a pretty good metaphor, image for what life is like according to the Proverbs, okay? I like lake hikes. Uh, How many of you have done like hiking in a place like Colorado? You can raise your hands. Okay, good amount of us. Okay. I like the lakes rather than the mountaintops. Uh, I'm not chasing summits because there's something about sitting at the edge of a lake at 12,000 feet eating your lunch that's just like with snow-capped mountains all around. It's just beautiful. So hiking is like life. And I'm not just making this stuff. I think this is in line with the scriptures, in line with Proverbs. A good hike will have moments where you'll literally just stop dead in your tracks. And you'll be like, I cannot walk any further. I just have to take this in. Let me have this moment right here. And then there will be moments where you are like flat out angry at the terrain and you're like, this hike can't go any higher. Stop with the super steep, you know, like I'm done. Some of the parts of the hike will have this really clear path and other parts you're scrambling up boulders, hoping you're going in the right direction and that you're not just going to careen off the side when you get up there. Some moments, right, when you hike, you feel super energized. You're like, I could do this for five more hours. Give me 3,000 more feet of elevation gain. And at other moments, you're like, I just forget it. I'm done with this. I want to go back down. There are flat parts. There are steep parts. There are pretty parts. And honestly, sometimes there's not so pretty parts. Some hikes end with this overwhelmingly beautiful view. And I hate to admit it, sometimes when you've done some of those really nice ones, at the end, you're like, yeah, I spent five hours doing this. Like, seen way better. Um, According to the Proverbs, life is a lot like hiking. Okay, so there's this single Hebrew word, derek, that gets translated a handful of ways. Road, path, trail, way, 
course, and it is the most consistent metaphor for what life is like in Proverbs. So the whole of our lives is one long journey down a path. And there are very real implications to seeing life this way. But before we get there, let me show this to you. We're going to go to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8. I want you to pay attention to the ways the father is telling his son that life is a path. Okay, we're going to start in 1, then we're going to jump right straight to chapter 2. Proverbs 1.8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let us lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us and we will share the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For your feet, their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. Jump with me down to chapter 2, starting in verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards, here it is again, the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you. And understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways. You see it? Who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose last one, paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Every one of those words that I exaggerated as I read is the same Hebrew word. The, and, and I could go on, even in chapter two, there are like a handful more that I could have done, but in mercy, I didn't want to, you know, make you listen to all that. So the dominant metaphor for what life is like, what it is in Proverbs is a path, a path that we walk full of temptation and twists and turns and opportunities. I think that we tend to think of life like a door, or like maybe a series of doors that we walk through to get to a place. I think that's just culturally what we do. And so when we think that way, that life is a door or a series of doors that we walk through to get to a place, then we make life about finding the keys. I just got to get the keys and then poof, I will get there. But that's not actually how life works. The Proverbs have a wildly different version of what life is. It's this path. It's this journey. It's this road. And so what are the implications? What are the implications if life is a path? Number one, the first one is, if life's a path, we will live with the end in mind. Nobody, unless you're just really into physical fitness for the sake of physical fitness and 
Praise be to God if that's you. It's not me. But nobody hikes, almost nobody hikes just to hike. Right? You hike to get somewhere. There is always a lake or a mountaintop summit or a waterfall or something that you're trying to get to at the end. What is that, according to Proverbs? If we're on this path, what's the end of that path? Well, there's a lot of things we could say from the Proverbs and a lot of places we could go. But Proverbs 8, 34 to 35 might be a good place. It says, blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. It's talking about wisdom. For those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. The end is life. So the the life is a path, but the path is leading us to life. Ultimately, it's everlasting life with God. It's to taste of the eternal, unblemished life that we were made for. It's to see God with our own eyes and to be made like him. It's to say, because of that, that at the end of our earthly lives, that we, again, this is from the Proverbs, that we bound love and faithfulness around our necks for all our days. That we live for the sake of others that we gave our lives away, that we spent our lives laboring for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, that we live to be like Jesus. My concern, my worry is that we are so frenzied with what's in front of us at any given moment. We live at a pace of life that's unsustainable. We are constantly hurried that we forget to remember what this path is all about and where this path is leading and what our lives ought to be about because of where it's leading. Are we living with the end in mind? Are you living now with that end in sight? If life is a path that has an end, when you look back at the end of your life, is it going to match what you want your life to be about? Second thing, if life is a path, then drifting is dangerous. I am so, so tired of hearing about pastors who have moral failures and leave this wake of devastation behind them. It's sickening. But it's not just pastors. It's happening all the time. Right? And it doesn't happen overnight. When you hear these stories of this big influential person with tons, hundreds, thousands, millions of followers having this moral failure, that probably did not happen overnight, right? It happens slightly at the start. We, we, we abandon the word of God. We abandon prayer and the disciplines. We step out of fellowship and out of accountability, right? If that's you today, I would plead with you. I would echo the words of this father to his son in Proverbs to go the path of wisdom, to turn, to get on the path that leads you to God. The author of Proverbs is constantly pleading with his son. Pay attention, Pay attention, do not go off the path. Proverbs 4.13 says, hold on to instruction. Do not let go of it. Guard it well, for it is your life. And then just a few verses later, the passage that we already taught on in the series, above all else, guard your hearts, for everything you do flows from it. And then in verse 26, give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Are we guarding our hearts, church? Are we being attentive to what's happening inside of us? 
Is there temptation? Is there anger? Is there greed? Is there lust that's bubbling up inside of us, a desire ultimately to forget God, to forget about him and just go it alone? Are we being steadfast to stay the course? And if we are not, will we turn back? That's the second thing. The third thing, if life is a path, then more than technique is required. Tim Keller, one of my heroes of the faith, pastor in New York City, he says this, most of us, we're not after wisdom for a path. We're just after a technique for life, right? This is what happens when life is a door and you just need the keys to get to the place. What are the tricks? What are the hacks that I need to get past these challenges and arrive at whatever we define as the good life? Just give me the keys and I'll unlock the doors and I'll get there. We see this all the time in parenting. So Tiffany and I, we have, we have four kids, as I mentioned, because we all lived in that little cabin, that two-bedroom, okay. Um, all the time. And I'm not saying there's no value to this, okay? I'm not trying to trash the whole world of this, but read this book and your kid will sleep 12 hours straight from their second day out of the womb. They're, those books exist. Trust me, we read them. Failed miserably at them. Read this book and your kid will never be disrespectful to you. Read this book and your kid will guarantee to walk with Jesus every day of their life. Right? But life doesn't work that way. We who parent kids, we know that. Parenting is deeply spiritual and emotional. It's a daily grind. It's a long journey. And in all of it, we're not just trying to arrive at some place. We're not trying to just master parenting. We're trying to walk with our kids through life, being attentive to what they need moment by moment, season by season. We can't technique our way into being the kind of parents that God has called us to be. It doesn't work that way. We need something better than technique. So if life is a path, if we can't just technique our way to, through it, the next big question is what is the most important decision we make on this path? And the answer, according to Proverbs, is the companion we choose to walk it with. The companion we choose. Who is going with you? Who is leading you and guiding you through all the twists and turns when there isn't a law or a command or anything explicitly at, at hand? When there's complexity and we aren't sure what to do? Which, if we're honest, for some of us, for me, I feel like it's multiple times a day. Proverbs tells us that there are two companions available to us. Each one of them is personified as a woman. And we're told that we will be led by one of them. It's just a question of which one. Their names are wisdom and folly. Lady wisdom and lady folly. Turn with me to Proverbs 9. This is where we're going to land. This is what I want you to see in this, this, this passage in chapter 9. I want you to see the similarities and the differences between these two companions that we can take with us in the journey. Wisdom and folly. Proverbs 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live, walk in the way of insight. 
You see the strong language of invitation. Wisdom is urging us to come and dine with her. And the setting of a meal is a metaphor for our entire lives. Wisdom is inviting us to live and walk the path of insight. But she is not the only one calling to us. Jump with me down to verse 13. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat, notice the similarities, at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple, same language, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Listen to this. Little do they know that the dead are there that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. All throughout the book of Proverbs, folly leads to death. Wisdom to life and to blessing and to abundance. Folly, sorrow, death, demise. Folly, we hear that word. I, I, just, I, want, I want us to know it's not simply silliness. It's not simply youthfulness. It's a way of living like God is not God, right? It's the, it's the core human temptation, It's living like God isn't real, like God's not God, and we are. It's rejecting his ways, and it always leads to death. So on one side, they're completely different. Life, blessing, abundance, death, sorrow, demise. But did you notice the similarities? They are both calling out. Wisdom and folly are both calling out. They're they're both inviting the simple. That's all of us. The Bible calls us simple. Not the most glorious thing to be called. It calls us the simple. They've both prepared a meal. They both sit at the highest point of the city. They are calling to us from the same place. In the ancient Near East, the tallest building in any city would have been the temple. That is not a small detail. It's in the house of worship that both wisdom and folly call to us. It's a reminder, don't miss this, that we are always being called to worship. You know that one of the things that we just can't, you know, not do, and it it stumps sociologists and anthropologists is human beings are so inescapably worshipful. We are just made to worship someone, something. And this is a reminder to us that we are always being called to worship by God and by someone or something else. Every hour of our lives, we are being beckoned, come and worship in the decisions that we make, right? In the money that we spend, in the ambitions that we chase after, in the affections of our heart and the attention that we give to things in this life, we are being called to worship. Both wisdom and folly want our hearts, God and the idols of this world. And honestly, it's just confusing sometimes. We don't know which it is. I can relate to that. Should I do this thing? Should I pursue this thing? Should I, should I make this change? Should I buy this thing? Should I do this thing? Am I doing it in a way that will honor God or am I just chasing after some selfish ambition, some vain idol? We are desperate for a companion to walk with us down this path, to help us stay the course and remain faithful to God. Well, who is wisdom? If we say, okay, we're gonna walk in the path of wisdom, if we're gonna heed the advice that this son is, this father is giving to his son, we say, we are gonna walk the path of wisdom. Well, who's wisdom? 
What is wisdom? And here's the beautiful thing. It's the most amazing thing about this. God himself is wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jesus is called the wisdom of God. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. And we who know him and walk with him live by the same spirit that was in him. And we have wisdom. Take heart. We are not asked to walk this path alone. In a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to take communion. And you know what's happening in communion, right? Is that we are remembering once more. We are remembering again, afresh, that God has come near to us, that he walks with us, that he leads and guides and speaks to us. We remember that he is for us and not against us, that he loves, loves, loves to lavish us with good gifts, with abundance, the greatest of which is his salvation. And we remember that all of that is true because of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We worship in communion the God who bled and who died for his creation. We proclaim again afresh that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that his body was broken for the forgiveness of sins, and that we who call him Lord are being beckoned to come and die that we might live like him and be like him for this world. But here's here's what we also remember. We also remember in communion that before he went to that cross, that he promised he would not leave us as orphans. So in John chapter 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you a companion, an advocate. He tells them that he will give them the Holy Spirit in John 14, who will help them and be with them, be with them forever. He says two chapters later that the Spirit will guide us into all truth, not just doctrinal knowledge, but into all truth, which is truth for living. The Spirit of God will lead us into wisdom. We can walk this path that's being talked about over and over and over again in Proverbs because of the Holy Spirit. For those of us who claim Jesus as Lord, the Spirit of God lives in you and wants to lead you. He wants to speak to you and to guide you. The question is, who is your companion in this journey? Who is leading you through all the complexities and the difficulties and the decisions? Who's defining abundance and goodness in life? The Spirit of God is our companion. Do we walk in dependence and in submission to him? As we move into this time of communion, I want to just ask you to take an honest inventory of your life. Am I walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit? My living in dependence upon him day by day, asking him to fill my heart, to fill my mind. And for those of you who are here and maybe you've never crossed that line of faith, maybe you're still kind of wrestling and checking out this Christianity, this following Jesus thing, I want you to know that the only way that the spirit of God will come and live inside of you and will give you this wisdom day by day is if you start by surrendering your life to him. If you own up to and acknowledge the brokenness your complete inability to walk this life alone and you acknowledge your sin and you turn and you say, I want to follow you, Jesus, with my life, you will at that moment be given the Holy Spirit 
You don't have to earn it. You don't have to like strive after. It's not something that you get like, you don't get the Holy Spirit like year three of walking with Jesus. You are given the Spirit as a gift at the moment of belief and he will walk with you and he will be your companion. Will you make that decision to surrender? Church, I believe that there's life and joy and exuberance and transformation that is awaiting us if we will walk in step with the Spirit. Will we do that? Let's pray.